All right. Has anybody in here seen the King Corn documentary? I don't think I don't think anybody at Rooftop today has seen this documentary. I'm not sure why. It's literally the first thing I thought of when I had this back. I'm not. It was just in the back of my subconscious somewhere. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. So back in the early 2000s, best friends Ian Cheney and Kurt Ellis, the two guys you meet in the video, were attending college together in Boston when they found out kind of a strange connection between the two of them. So not only did they share a mutual love for understanding more of what's in their food, they also discovered that they had great-grandfathers who grew up together on a small corn farm, uh, in a small corn farm uh, town in Iowa. So though their families had scattered all over the country, they ended up at school in Boston and discovered way back when their families both came from the same town. So they decided to move to that county. One year after graduating from college, they moved to this small town in Iowa. They lease out one acre of farmland and they spend a year farming it and learning everything they can about the corn industry. And out of the filming of that experience comes this documentary, King Corn. The film is fascinating and a thoroughly enjoyable, although apparently underappreciated watch. Uh, you can actually find the whole thing for free on YouTube. I'd recommend it. It's a great 90 minutes if you got it. Um, it's on the one hand, a fish out of water story about these East coast college kids who come to this Iowa town. The town is incredibly charming and the farmers are very friendly and welcoming. And it's just delightful to watch them build these friendships. And then secondly, it's also a powerful recounting of the history of food in this country, particularly as, uh, two forces, government deregulation and technological innovation come together in the middle of the 20th century. I won't bore you with all the details of it. You can watch the movie for that. Uh, but the basic story is that in the early 1970s, the government decided to deregulate how we grew crops, uh, crops like corn and soybeans and a few other things uh, to sort of flood the market with them. And the idea was that if you, if you throw all that stuff out in the market, the price of food all around will go down. So it becomes cheaper to get meat. And that's something that Americans really demand. Uh, we learned that it was much cheaper to feed cows corn than grass. It fattens them up more and more quickly. Uh, and so at that time, it's also where you see the explosion of brands like McDonald's and fast food kind of goes everywhere. We start making so much corn that we can't even eat it all. We can't sell it all. So we also start experimenting with corn-based sweeteners. You have the rise of uh, high fructose corn syrup in the 1980s. I promise I'm not coming after your diet today. I'm really going to turn the corner on this metaphor here in a second, I promise. Uh, today, though, Americans drink about 70% of the corn we produce. So the corn we make, 70% of those kernels actually goes into our bodies via drink. Uh, it would take us another decade or so to figure out how linked those things were to problems like obesity and diabetes. Uh, in the end, Ian and Curtis, our two uh, documentarians, learned two major lessons about corn. Number one, corn is everywhere in everything. There's lots of those sort of grocery store, you know, they're picking up a label and looking at it shots. Uh, so corn is everywhere. It's in everything. And number two, corn is to some degree killing us as a culture. After their year-long experiment ends, the guys decide to buy the acre of land they've been leasing from their friendly farmers. They buy it, and they make the decision to uproot the corn crop that's there and plant grass instead. And the film ends with this aerial shot of them playing wiffle ball on their acre of grass surrounded by this sort of sea of unending cornfields. This is a really provocative shot at the end. This morning, though, here's my turn. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at something even more abundant and deadly than corn, namely our sin. See, we got there. And what it might take to uproot it as part of five of Rooftop's recent sermon series called Wise Guy, Divine Wisdom from the Book of James. 
Uh, I've had a blast following along with you guys through this series as Matt and Skylar and Ariel have been teaching through this challenging little New Testament book, and I'm really excited for our time together this morning. Uh, as you probably remember, the book of James was written by Jesus's half-brother, James, who was a leader in the early church. It was written particularly to those Jewish Christians who'd been scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, by persecution, which started in Jerusalem with the Jewish leaders. Uh, it eventually came it, from the, uh, the Roman government as well. And as Matt said in the first week of the series, the big theme of the book of James is perseverance. What does it look like to survive and thrive when opposition is coming your way? And to help these scattered believers all over the, all over the known world, James writes this really practical little book full of wisdom and practical advice, borrowing a lot of his thinking from Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5. And as Ariel said last week, the goal of James is to turn our faith into wise and godly living. It's to take the things we think and feel and believe about Jesus and what it means to follow them and to turn them into real life, to turn them into practical living. Uh, so far in this series, you guys have looked at how we pursue wisdom. You've talked about how we should think about our relationship with money and how we fight temptation. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the connection between our external actions and the condition of our hearts. Uh, and this is going to come from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So if you're turning there in your Bible or you're pulling it up on your phone, it's James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. And I'll go ahead and share with you the big idea for our message today. Here's where we're going. The big idea is that God's righteousness is produced within us as we weed our hearts of evil and receive the life-saving word of Jesus. God's righteousness, which is one of those sort of churchy words that we'll put some definition to, but stick with me for a second. God's righteousness is produced within us as we weed our hearts of evil and receive the life-saving word of Jesus. That's the big idea. That's where we're going. So let's jump into the passage. James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Let's pray. Jesus, we're honored to sit underneath your word this morning. God, there's nothing I'm going to say the rest of our time together that's more powerful than what, than what James wrote. God, than what you've said in your word. And so, Lord, may anything that I say just, just go toward helping us understand it more um, and Lord, may we be changed. May we not leave here unchanged by what we've seen. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of this passage, and really James as a whole, is that it's just full of these clear, simple arguments. Basically, this passage says, hey, listen, here's this easy to memorize but hard to do thing. Here's some advice. Here's uh, why this thing is good to do. And then here's how to become the kind of person that can actually do it. Something wise a reason why, and how to actually do it. And James starts that argument by grabbing our attention. Uh, my wife, Emily, and I have three daughters uh, who are in the back at rooftops today. So we've got Ren, who's five, uh, Glory, who just turned three, and Delta, who I promise we named before the coronavirus variants. Uh, but she is our coronavirus baby, so we'll probably always remember that. Uh, but she turned just uh, this Tuesday, will turn nine months old. We're sort of hoping people forget the whole coronavirus thing by the time she hits school age. So I think, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, so we've got three little kids at our house that constantly need our attention. It seems like there's no time they need it more uh, than when I'm trying to give it to literally anything else or anybody else. Uh, it never fails if we're out in a park or at church, if I'm even attempting to have like a surface level conversation with somebody, uh, that I'll eventually hear uh, one of my daughters start to raise their voice. 
right? They start a fight with each other. So I hear one get loud, the other one gets loud, then I hear the pitter-patter of little feet and I feel a tug on my pant leg and I hear, daddy, 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 just louder. And then I hear the pitter-patter of the other one's footsteps coming as well and another tug, right? And there's escalating and eventually it becomes, excuse me, because they've heard us say like a million times that the right way to interrupt grownups is to say, excuse me. So now I've got this like escalating chorus of excuses me. Um, and it really doesn't matter at that point if my friend and I want to continue our conversation because you can't help but pay attention to these polite little monsters, right? Uh, James starts this passage in kind of a similar way. He grabs our attention, it says, in three specific ways here. Uh, so he starts by saying, my dear brother and sisters, This is a family term, obviously, right? There's a few different ways that the New Testament writers talk about the church as a collective. So sometimes they'll talk about how we're like a building with many bricks. Sometimes we're a body with many parts. But really, more often than not, we're a family with many brothers and sisters. And it's a good reminder to us that when we see words like you in the New Testament, that the Bible writers aren't always talking to you, the individual. They're often addressing the collective, Right? And a question we could ask this morning out of this passage is, what does it look like for us as a community to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Right? So he goes on, my dear brothers and sisters, and then he says, take note of this. You could also translate that to say, you know this already, but you've heard this before, but let me remind you again. Okay? And finally, he gets our attention by saying, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And then he says, uh, everyone should. And what he's emphasizing here is this isn't just a word for the leaders in the church. This isn't just a word for the sort of super Christian people out there, right? This is a word for everybody. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should do this thing. He's got our attention. What does he want to say? And here's what James says. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is the first of a handful of things James is going to tell us in his letter about how we use our words and the importance of words when it comes to following Jesus. In chapter three, he'll talk about how the tongue is like a rudder on a ship. It's this really small thing that controls this huge vessel, right? Just like this tiny muscle controls so much of our body and our experience of the world. In James four, he warns us against slandering our neighbors and promising to do something tomorrow when we don't even know what we're going to do today. And today's not even guaranteed. Right? This, this verse, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, reminds me of the book of Proverbs, right? And it really sounds like a proverb, and of Jesus' words connecting our, uh, our voices, our words, and our anger from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he says this. Jesus told them, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus connects our words with our anger and the judgment that comes. And likewise, in Proverbs 17, 28, it says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent, and discerning if they hold their tongues. And later, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And all of these verses together point to some common themes that the Bible seems to be laying out for us as wisdom when it comes to our words. In particular, they seem to be suggesting that there's a connection between listening, speaking, and anger, the escalation of conflict, the fracturing of relationships, that somehow those things interrelate. And it seems to matter, especially if you listen or speak first, and if you listen or speak most. Which one do you do first, and which one do you do the most? 
When I was first getting into ministry, like a lot of people, I also worked at a coffee shop to make ends meet. So I had to go through barista training so I could learn to do things like make espresso and froth milk and all that good stuff. Uh, I also learned fancy Italian words like latte and macchiato. Uh, the difference, just so you know, I know you're curious, so let me tell you. The difference between, let's say, like a caramel latte and a caramel macchiato is mostly the order in which you put the ingredients, okay? So a caramel latte starts with espresso and syrup in the bottom of the cup, and then you pour the milk on top. But a caramel macchiato starts with the syrup and the milk already in it, and then you put the espresso on top. You mark it with the espresso, which is what macchiato means, okay? You're welcome. I know that was something you were curious about today, so I'm happy to fill that in for you. Uh, similarly, though, there's, there's an order to it, right? It matters what order it goes in. And similarly, James is saying, when it comes to listening and speaking, there's an order and a rhythm that should be practiced if you don't want things to go sour between you and your community. He says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And those words, quick and slow, are kind of doing double duty. They're both talking about the speed with which you do something and the frequency. Which one do you do first? And which one do you do most, particularly when the heat is on, right? These people are undergoing persecution. When there's tension in your life, when there's conflict happening, are you more of a listener or are you more of a speaker? As much as it pains me to admit this, I think one of the main spaces this tension gets played out is on social media, in our generation at least. It's likely the case that there's no greater influence on our lives right now in this present moment when it comes to obeying this verse, for good or ill, than social media, Uh, When the uprising happened in and around Ferguson after Mike Brown was killed back in 2014, I think we all saw here in St. Louis firsthand uh, the power that social media has as both a listening and a speaking platform. I remember when those events were happening, uh, just being on my phone at night and just reading story after story of friends and strangers from around the country who had experienced injustice in the criminal justice system. Uh, I remember the flood of videos that came out over the next few years that showed us how widespread the problem is. Ferguson highlighted in some ways the strengths of social media as a platform for listening to voices that we sometimes ignore uh, and for giving those voices a place to speak and be heard. But at the same time, it also highlighted some of the worst of the problem James is speaking to in this verse. Places like Twitter and YouTube and Facebook are run by algorithms that basically incentivize us to do the opposite of what this verse is saying, right? People who get famous on the internet are generally slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. Anger drives traffic, which drives commerce on the internet. It doesn't tend to be the nuanced opinions formed by years of friendship and reflection that go viral on Twitter. Every single one of us every day holds a, a pocket, in our pocket a tool that's been crafted by brilliant engineers and developers to make you disobey this verse. Right? That's essentially what this thing does, is it helps you oh, disobey this verse. Uh, I remember when Matt sent me this passage, he told me that a seminary professor had told him that the be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry is the least obeyed verse in the entire Bible, right? And I think the presence of something like social media really proves that. It really goes a long way. But that said, it's not like our first century family had it much easier. Remember that the people who originally were reading this letter were facing intense persecution for their allegiance to Jesus. Quick to listen, slow to become angry, slow to speak hits a little differently when you remember that this letter was written to 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This was written to refugees, right? People who are facing persecution, they're driven from their homeland to other countries. And that idea of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry hits differently when you remember that. I might feel like it's hard to hold back my anger when a friend says something I disagree with, but it's a lot different than the anger I might feel if somebody was putting my wife in prison or worse. How can James ask us to be slow to be angry when we have good reason to be mad, when we see the brokenness of our world, when we see injustice happening? 
In the face of all that's wrong, why should we choose to listen first and listen most? James tells us, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And here's the reason why. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let's pause here for a second. I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, my brain basically completely skips over the phrase, the righteousness that God desires. I don't know if it's because I grew up in church and I've sung the word righteousness a million times, but my brain thinks it knows what that word means, so I don't have to stop and think about it until Pastor Matt sends me this passage and asks me to explain it to a room full of people, and then I have to wonder, do I really know what righteousness is? So let me try to give us a simple definition. Uh, This phrase, the righteousness that God desires, you could also translate it just God's righteousness, uh, is used all over. The, it's one of the main ideas in scripture, most repeated ideas. And to give it as simple a definition as I can, here's what it is. The righteousness of God is the accomplishment of Jesus declared over and lived out in his people. It's the accomplishment of Jesus, his fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, his exemplary life, his sacrificial death, his death-defeating resurrection, and his exaltation at the right hand of God. That accomplishment, that whole story is declared over you and is lived out in your life as a follower of Jesus. When you surrender your allegiance to him, when you become a Christian, his work, his accomplishment is declared over your life meaning that perfect, beloved status that Jesus has in the eyes of God, that's given to you when he looks at you, if you're a Christian. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus, right? He speaks the words that were spoken at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And if you're a Christian here today, he sees that. He sees that in you. So that righteousness is declared over you. The story of Jesus is declared over your life. But it's also beginning to work its way in the life of Jesus, C.S. Lewis called this idea the good infection. I realize a pandemic may not be the best time for a viral metaphors, but in some way, it also feels like a right one because we sort of get it. Um, I took my two older daughters to the pediatrician on Friday. My three-year-old and I both got flu shots, and my five-year-old got a flu shot and then three other booster shots. It was brutal. Four shots, one after the other. And when we got home, they were both complaining that their arms were sore. So I told them what I remember my mom telling me after I got a shot when I was a kid. I just said, you know, you got to just keep kind of moving your arm around throughout the day. If you keep using it, what happens is the medicine won't just sort of stay concentrated in one place. It starts to spread throughout your bloodstream. I'm not sure if that's medically technically true, but it's what my mom told me. So I just kind of passed it along to them. Um, But Lewis said following Jesus was kind of like that too. When you follow Jesus, you immediately receive the antidote to your sin, right? Jesus' righteousness is declared over your life. Okay? But he says that also, if you, as you live, as you keep moving that arm around, as you keep walking through the world, that good infection starts to spread throughout your body, and more and more of your life comes under the authority of Jesus. Soon, that lifestyle starts to impact how you spend your money, how you parent your kids, how you live in your relationships, how you are on the job. Okay? More and more of your life is marked by the life of Jesus, and it begins to look like your life is Jesus living it himself. Everything comes under that life-giving authority. And that's what God wants for your life and for the world. That's his plan, that everything would come under the lordship of Jesus and be redeemed as God's people work out his life in the world. That's how he plans to make the world right. That's the righteousness of God. So why should you be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Because your anger, our anger, the anger of humans does not accomplish this task. It can't fix what's wrong with the world. Only the righteousness of God can do that. Let me say a quick word to those of you who might struggle in particular with anger. Don't raise your hand or anything, but I know some of you listening, this is your thing, 
right? When we read this passage, you realize this might be like anger Sunday at rooftop. Uh, Maybe you like shrunk down into your seat a bit, okay? Many of us who struggle with anger carry with it a lot of shame. We can't believe we haven't mastered this thing yet, right? We can't believe we blew up again. We can't believe we said that thing to our friends. We try to do better, but it feels impossible and we don't know how to fix it. Um, People who study neuroscience and human behavior tells us that under the uh, surface of anger is often a really deep current of fear, particularly the fear of losing control. The world feels off kilter. It feels precarious. Like if one more thing goes wrong, right, I'm just going to lose it all. Everything is going to be lost and permanently broken. Okay, we feel like something's wrong with us, something's wrong with the world, and our response is to seize control, to grasp at something and lash out. And I think James has deep healing and restoration for us in this passage. He says everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, not because the world is so hopelessly broken that it can never be fixed, but because human anger alone can't fix it, right? We can't make the world right on our own like God wants it to be right. We can't fix what's broken, but there's good news. Somebody can, and somebody has. We can bring our shame and our need for control to Jesus. That's the invitation James leaves us with in the final verse here. Here's what he says. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So we've heard our practical advice, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We've heard our reason why. Human anger won't fix the world. It won't produce the righteousness of God and make the world new again. And now we get to the practical. How do we become the kind of people that can actually do this? I don't know about you, but this is hard for me. Quick to listen is not something I excel at. So how do we get there? And here's where we come back to our big idea. God's righteousness is produced within us, as we weed our hearts of evil and receive the life-saving word of Jesus. James says two things in this verse, this last verse. Get rid of all the moral filth and evil that's so prevalent, and then humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Get rid of this thing and humbly accept something new and different. It's like taking off one jacket and putting on another one. Get rid of the moral filth and evil and accept this new word planted in you, this word being Jesus, his life the life found in his accomplishment, and then planted into your life or injected like the good infection. Um, Can we put that slide with verse 21 back up here? I just want to talk about it here for a second. Um, I love the categories that this verse uses to describe what's broken about the world because they're just so relatable. This this passage reminds me that the Bible is not just this like ancient book that we're all supposed to agree with, but it actually has these really incisive looks at how the world actually works. James tells us, first of all, to get rid of all moral filth. And that word that gets translated moral filth, it's only used in this passage in the entire Bible, right? And actually, it's the same word that at the time they used to describe earwax, which is really gross, right? So that's the word that gets translated moral filth in your passage. It's the same word they use for earwax. It's the grime, right? The buildup, the gross stuff. It's what you think of when I say the word sin, right? It's the thing that makes you feel dirty morally in your life, okay? Second, though, he tells us, get rid of moral filth. He also says, get rid of the evil that is so prevalent, which again, just feels so relatable to me. Not only is there dirt and grime in my life, but every time I turn on the news, every time I look at my phone, I'm reminded that the evil is not just in me, it's out there too, right? It's growing everywhere like corn in Iowa, right? Just mountains and mountains of excessive injustice. So much evil, we can't even fit it into the elevator anymore. And I'm fascinated here by James's prescription for dealing with it, dealing with this problem. He doesn't tell us to take deep breaths if we feel angry or to practice gratitude. Those might be good advice. But he tells us to get rid of the sin and evil in our lives and receive the life of Jesus. It's almost like this passage isn't really about anger at all, per se. 
But the anger is just a symptom of a greater disease, something more fundamentally broken at the core of who we are. For some of us, that disease comes out as anger. For others, our struggle might be lust or pride or something else. This passage could just as easily say, be quick to be humble, slow to talk about yourself, slow to seek others' affirmation, be quick to give money away, slow to spend it on yourself, slow to store it up for later. Yes, everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry, but not just because that's like generally some good advice that would make the world a friendlier place, but because our primary disease is not anger, it's sin and evil. We can't just deal with our anger problem. We can't just treat the symptom. We have to get down to the disease. We need a cure that can get into our blood and fight the deeper issues under the surface. Sin and evil are just like corn. They're everywhere, in everything, pretending to sweeten our lives and make them faster and cheaper, all the while slowly killing us. James says the only thing you can do when you're faced with such abundant evil inside and out is to dig it up by the roots and plant something new, something life-giving like grass for a wiffle ball game. God's righteousness is produced within us as we weed our hearts of evil and receive the life-saving word of Jesus. As we close today, let me give you three practices that help us weed our hearts of evil and do that, receive that life-saving word. If the real problem in our lives goes deep in the weeds, we need some real tools to fix it. The first one is this, practice humility. Practice humility. James says in that verse, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept the word. Humility is key in our fight against the sin inside and the evil outside. To choose to practice humility is to choose against the current of this world. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German theologian from the early 20th century. And he talked about the discipline of humility, which I think is a great phrase because when somebody tells me just like, hey, go be humble or whatever, I'm not exactly sure how to do that. But Bonhoeffer has this brilliant way of breaking it down. He says to practice humility takes two things. It takes an honest consideration of myself and a generous consideration of others. It's to look at myself honestly and to look at other people generously. Here's what he writes. To practice humility is to consider oneself the greatest of sinners. If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I'm still not recognizing my own sinfulness at all. Brotherly love will find any number of extenuations for the sins of others only for my sin. Is there no apology whatsoever? If you want to practice humility, if you want to weed your heart of evil and receive the word of Jesus, ask yourself, are you aware of the darkness in your own heart. For some of us, when I say that, you can't help but think of a laundry list of things that are wrong in your life. And to be honest, what you actually need to hear today is that there's a word of freedom for you this morning, that you might've brought in a lot of baggage. You may feel the weight of sin in your life, but Jesus has freedom for you. You can leave that stuff here. You don't have to take it back to the car with you, okay? You can leave those things at the foot of the cross. Jesus has taken care of it. And that word, you are my beloved child, has been spoken over your life. You can leave those things here. But for others, though, when we think about sin, all we can think about is somebody else's. We kind of feel like we're doing okay, but James says, no, no, no. Sin is like earwax. It's like corn, right? It's everywhere, right? It's inside of you. Humility requires that we become brave enough to take an honest look at the darkness of our own hearts and generous enough to assume the best of the people around us. And this morning, if you don't know where to begin, I want to challenge you to ask the Lord to reveal to you the status of your own heart. What are you hiding in your life? What sin Uh, is hiding there? What are the weeds that need to be grabbed by the roots? The first call for us is to practice humility. Second, practice confession. Practice confession. Uh, This to me is one of the most beautiful parts about following Jesus. There's no real way to do it alone. 
Everything in our world incentivizes hiding the broken, messy parts of our lives, of putting filters over anything that doesn't look attractive, clicking a like button instead of getting our hands dirty. But Jesus invites us into mess, and he invites us there together. Uh, Bonhoeffer goes on, one more Bonhoeffer quote. He says, it's the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of the other. If one does not experience it, the fellowship he belongs to is not Christian. Bonhoeffer says, if, you're, if you are following Jesus, but you don't carry the burden of other believers in your life, if you're not feeling the weight of somebody else's struggle and sin and hurt, if you're not carrying that for somebody, if somebody's not carrying your stuff, the community you belong to is not particularly Christian. Part of what it means to follow Jesus, the biggest, one of the biggest gifts we give each other as brothers and sisters in this family is the gift of transparency. It's the willingness to know and be known. To miss out on that call is to miss out in some ways on the heart of following Jesus. So if you're practicing humility, if you're allowing the Lord to reveal junk in your life, don't carry that burden alone. Find a small group here at Rooftop. Find a couple of people that you can get together with and have real conversations to share life together. Uh, During the pandemic, uh, three other dads and I in my life started meeting on Thursday nights just in my backyard or somebody's backyard. And we had no agenda. We didn't like to make cookies or anything. We just put out some chairs and we hung out outside because it was safe. And just once a week, we would get together just to talk and share life. Uh, And for me, it was one of those sanity-saving pieces of the lockdown, was just having some people to talk to on a regular basis. If you don't have something like that, I encourage you to get in community like that. You need it if you're going to follow Jesus. So practice humility, practice confession, and lastly, practice repentance. Practice repentance. Uh, Repentance is another one of those sort of churchy words that my brain just sort of skips over and acts like it knows what it means. Uh, I used to think that to repent was basically just to give somebody a really big I'm sorry It's like you just, you feel super sorry. That's what it means to repent. Um, In actuality, though, to practice repentance is to do the, is to act in the opposite direction that you were going before. Uh, There's this awesome story in the Gospels where the Pharisees come to John the Baptist because they want to see the show of this weird guy in the desert who's baptizing people. You guys remember this? He calls them a big group of snakes. He says, you bunch of vipers who warned you to flee the coming wrath. And then he tells them this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, don't tell me with your words that you believe this stuff. Show me with your life. If there's some sin in your life that you're wrestling with, you've been trying to get away from, one of the ways we practice repentance is by actually actively living in the opposite direction. If you're wrestling with greed, one of the best ways to deal with that is to be generous, is to practice generosity. Um, If you're wrestling with lying, you are going to need at some point to go tell the people you've lied to the truth. Jesus tells us if our right eye causes us to sin, we should tear it out, right, and throw it away. It's not the same as just saying, I'm sorry. There's some sort of practical action that goes into there. And maybe a step for you today might be asking the Lord, what does that look like in your life? Not just how do you say sorry one more time, but how do you actually move in the opposite direction? Can he give you the power to do that? Let me say one last thing. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, maybe something today is still resonating for you. You see that the world is broken, right? You see that it's broken, not just out there somewhere, but something inside of you is broken as well, but you don't know what to do next. And I want to invite you today to surrender your life to Jesus, to ask God to enter your life and make you new. That's where it starts. That's the first step. Where you are today to stop, admit that you need him, and ask Jesus to make your life new. If you want to talk or pray with someone about that, I would love to talk to you. Jason, Heather, other folks around Rooftop would love to talk to you more about what that looks like. But I encourage you to do that today. Guys, to wrap up, sin and evil are everywhere like corn, and they're slowly killing us. 
As we practice humility, the Lord reveals the brokenness of our own hearts. As we practice confession, we bring those dark places into the light. And as we practice repentance, we begin to see the righteousness of God, Jesus' accomplishment, working itself like a seed deeper into the soil of our lives so that something beautiful and something that looks like Jesus can begin to grow there. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks uh, for this time. And God, like I prayed before, Lord, I pray that uh, nothing that I've said would, um, God, would, would, would fail to distract us from the thing you have for us today. So Jesus, whatever invitation you have for each one of us, for us collectively, God, that you would, uh, you would stir that up in our hearts, God, that we wouldn't walk away without doing something about it. So Lord, come and meet us here. Come and be who you are in this space. We pray this in your name. Amen.